0: Welcome to everything STEAM. I'm your host Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. First of all, apologies for the delay, it has been quite a personal transition for me since moving from the United States to Tel Aviv Yafo, Israel. It took over three weeks, honestly, to get all of my personal things, including my podcasting equipment, and I didn't want to record unless I had the proper equipment, but I'm back. This episode is geared towards the cutting edge of physics, with a sprinkle of Particle Physics 101. My guests and I have planned three specific topics that are categorized as a current mystery and or asymmetry. And an asymmetry is the lack of equivalence between parts or aspects of something. So for example, a common asymmetry is the amount of right-handed people in society compared to left-handed people. But we will start out by building your understanding of the standard model of particle physics. And then, of course, explain the current research and issues or holes with it. And then, with that knowledge, we will dive into the asymmetry of matter and antimatter and wrap up with a topic that my guest is very familiar with, ultra-cooled neutrons. Ooh. So, speaking of my guest, I would like you to please meet Dr. Kevin Hickerson, Kevin is a nuclear physicist specializing in probing the fundamental symmetries of nature using ultra-cold neutrons. He possesses a bachelor's, master's, and doctorate in experimental physics from the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, California, or Caltech. Kevin is also the host of the science and comedy podcast, Surely You're Joking, which features comedians like Jimmy O. Yang, Mitch Burrow, Owen Benjamin, Griff Pippin, and former guest star of this podcast, Matthew Broussard. My favorite fact about Kevin is that he has a dozen patents in 3D printing, robotics, tablet computing, machine learning, optics, and solar energy. So now that you've been introduced to Kevin and the topic of this podcast, we're going to head into our first segment where we plan to talk about the standard model of particle physics and of course its limitations. Cheers. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's been a long time coming. I think we met like, what, two months ago about yeah, this? Yeah, a long time, yeah. <laughs> finally made it work, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what's new in the, in the world of Kevin right now?
1: Well, I'm currently traveling, so it's fun to do this interview while I'm traveling. Um, I'm in Las Vegas. I was traveling for Oregon just at the Advanced Nuclear Conference in Nebraska, and that was really awesome. I met the governor of Nebraska got to talk to a lot of business leaders and people who deal with energy. So that's mostly what I'm working on right now. I'm trying to develop a company I'm working with or that I started not working with. I started to use nuclear energy to do some cool things.
0: That's awesome. We definitely need that in this country. I think right now there's only one new nuclear site that's in construction at the moment. But yet there's like if you look at it like internationally, like China has like 27 that are currently in motion
1: so Um, the Vogel plant in Atlanta was just completed and that's a really big accomplishment but that took a lot of effort and it was almost canceled many 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 times so we talked about that a lot at the conference it's a big accomplishment what we're really focused now in the U.S. at the moment is um, advanced nuclear and specifically small modular reactors which are reactors that are much smaller than traditional plants and we're really hoping that that will stop the delays and the construction problems that traditional reactors have had and they're also going to be safer and cheaper and awesomer
0: we love to hear that it's safer cheaper and awesomer (laughs) absolutely (laughs) i'm not sure that's the official term but i'm gonna i'm gonna use it (laughs) you know it's something that's been talked about for a long time and it's actually great to hear that it's you know coming into fruition we're not here to talk about nuclear energy i mean we're going to be talking about particles, really. But uh, this oh. first segment, we want to talk about the standard model of particle physics. With this podcast, we don't typically do podcasts like this because we're typically like um, putting science and you know engineering, tech, et cetera, on like a pedestal saying like all the great achievements and everything. But here we're going to obviously the standard model is a wonderful achievement. It gives us a lot of information information but we're also it going to be extent. poking holes at it or displaying the the holes that are in the standard model. And then also, as we move through the episode, we'll also be kind of bringing up mysteries that are being worked on. It's it's just a totally different approach to the podcast, which is pretty exciting. So we might as well just jump right in. I guess I'll ask you the really bland question to start out. what What is the standard model? And what are the major groups in the standard model?
1: The standard model has a really boring name, but in a weird (laughs) way, it is both boring and it's also really awesome, just like nuclear power. The standard (laughs) model is actually mathematically the most successful scientific theory in human history. Some parts of it are accurate to 40 decimal places, meaning that you can calculate something down to 40 decimal places. Just so you know, we don't even have the ability to calculate the mass of the sun to about four decimal places or five decimal places, something like that. So even though gravity is also a great theory, there's some things that we don't know about the universe nearly as well as we understand the standard model. And that's a really good blessing and also a curse. And so the blessing is that we really understand what happens with particles almost all of the time. Almost all of the time. <laughs> and especially in electromagnetism, we understand electromagnetism, which is a part of the standard model. It's actually just one little piece of it. So that means everything I would do with light, with charge, with electrons. That's one tiny corner of the standard model. And that's the best measured. And then inside of that, we also understand almost everything that happens with protons, with neutrons. And then there's an entire uh, zoo of particles that we can only make in a particle accelerator. And we didn't even realize we're there until the 1960s and 1970s. So that's the nice part. The downside is that it's very frustratingly wrong about other things. And I think that's (laughs) the main thing we're going to talk about is that something that still just cannot explain, despite being this incredibly accurate and successful scientific theory, it just doesn't explain certain things.
0: Most definitely. And the standard model can be broken down into two major groups. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong in, in any of this, but the, uh, the fermions and the bosons. The fermions are the mass particles, and then the bosons are the force-carrying particles. If you want yeah. to jump into that a little bit more.
1: Sure. So fermions and bosons are part of a subset of what the standard model is a part of, which is quantum mechanics, and specifically quantum field theory, Quantum mechanics, which explains all of quantum material, that's also a very unbelievably accurate theory in the sense that we've never found a case where it's wrong, except it still is wrong some of the time. But (laughs) other than that, every particle in quantum mechanics especially when you you start making particles in quantum mechanics you make fermions which have spin one half which is a very weird property that is not easy to explain in terms of everyday objects it's not like, like what you, if you spin a, a bowling ball that in no way acts like a spin one half particle yeah that's a classical object and so right. we have a lot of trouble understanding it intuitively but um most of us just made we are made of spin one half particles. So uh, that's all fermions are described that way. They're named after Enrico Fermi because he first helped describe these early on when he was working on quantum mechanics. So almost everything with mass that we know of, except for one particle, is a fermion. The particle that gives mass to everything is actually a spin zero particle. That was only discovered recently. That's called the Higgs boson. There's actually force-carrying particles that also have mass that couple of the Higgs boson. Um that uh, have to do with weak nuclear force. See, I I don't want to actually start from the back for I want to I want to go the other way. So we need to back up a little bit. We'll get into that later. Um so mm-hmm. the, the bosons have spin one and almost all interactions, meaning like uh when two particles talk to each other, they use a boson to talk to each other. That is so a fermion is coming along and then a boson is in exchange between the two. It's almost like a little messenger that says, you know, I, I have this charge, I have this spin, I you know i I'm, I'm here. I'm going to speed and it it transmits to the other particle and then goes off and that's how the standard model describes how pretty much everything in the universe interacts. I say almost everything because one thing missing from the standard model is gravity.
0: I was going to say that, actually. it's it's, The force-carrying particles uh, deal with three of the four fundamental forces.
1: Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And yet, even though gravity is the weakest force, it's also the most important on a big scale because it becomes the strongest when you're talking about the universe and the Big Bang and stuff like that. And unfortunately, gravity is not in the standard model. There's a lot of really interesting reasons why it's not. People have tried over Mm -hmm. and over, over, starting with Albert Einstein. He went to his deathbed hoping he could figure out He didn't even get to find out all of the standard model, but it doesn't change the fact that he tried to make gravity and quantum mechanics work together and they just don't work together. And that's a very deep mathematical problem. 100%.
0: The standard model can get extremely deep. Like what we're just talking about right now is just um, breaking down the fermions and the bosons, but like it gets more intricate based on the particles' properties. And then also we haven't even mentioned antimatter. There's a whole nother set of particles that run with the standard model.
1: You want me to try and name the particles I could try (laughs) off the top of my head? No, I I can. So we mentioned fermions. So Mm -hmm. let's start there. So there's actually a lot of fermions. Most of them don't occur in everyday life, but some of them do. So the ones that you and I are physically made out of all the time Mm -hmm. are up quarks and down quarks and electrons and photons. And then finally just throw some fun in a thing called a gluon. That's what you and I are made of all the time. So just mm-hmm. your all of the mass in your body, or you're feeling yourself existing. That's what is causing that to exist. According to the standard model, those are those fundamental particles. We've never found anything smaller than those, and that's kind of weird because those don't sound very recognizable to most people. Because most people don't like say, oh, I'm made of up and down quarks, but that's actually is what you are made of. When you feel that weight of you holding down on earth, ironically, even though gravity is not included in the standard model, that weight is mostly up and down quarks and gluons. Electrons play a little bit of a role in there too, but they mostly just do everything related to chemistry. So Mm -hmm. up and down quarks make up neutrons and protons that I'm sure everyone's heard of. You heard about that in chemistry class, but neutrons and protons are not fundamental. They're just made up of these quarks inside. particle called a gluon that glues up and down quarks together once we discovered up and down quarks we thought we had everything we really did this has happened a lot throughout history we thought we understood everything and then something very strange happened and that was it actually happened in pasadena uh california which is where i went to school so it was a cool place for it to happen it happened uh on top of a mountain we suddenly discovered this thing raining down from space. It was a lot heavier than something that could be explained by up and down quarks or by protons and neutrons. And it was this weird particle called a kaon, which I liked because my name starts with K. So I think it's just cool. These weird kaons showed up and they didn't behave like it's something that could be explained by stuff that was inside of the rest of matter. And the way it eventually got explained is that somebody said, I bet there's a new kind of quark. And I bet that quark is called a strange quark. And they called it strange because quite frankly, it was strange. It behaved just like a down quark in a lot of ways, except it was strange. And it was strange (laughs) in that it weighed more. That was the only thing about it. It just weighed more. And it only lived for a very short amount of time. That was definitely when people said, okay, we need a theory that explains what these particles are, what was going on, especially the fact that they were raining down from space was particularly weird (laughs) So or strange, sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. and so, really quickly, a pattern showed up to say, why is there a heavy down quark? Shouldn't there be something just like the up quark? And that was the first time that the standard model really got to predict the existence of a new particle. And that was really right. exciting because it was the beginning of this journey where it started predicting a lot of particles. But the problem is, people looked for it and they couldn't see it. It certainly wasn't coming from space, at least not in any kind of number that we could detect. And it took particle accelerators to look for it. And then eventually, people found this up quark, but it was way, way heavier. It was just like the upcourt, but way heavier. And they, and people were so delighted to see that they gave it also a really funny name. If you understand the history of why it showed up, you'll understand its name. It was called the charm court. Yep, it was called charm because it undid the strangeness of the streets because it looked just like the upcourt, just like the strange court, it was much heavier than the upcourt. Although it was even even heavier, it was like heavy, heavy, heavier. <laughs> And so suddenly people said there's this weird pattern that repeats. There's this up and down, and then there's charm and strange. The thing they have difference is that they're different particles, but they also weigh more, but they always weigh the same as each other. They just always seem to weigh more than the others. So that was the first time I realized there were more than just regular stuff around There's stuff we can only make in certain circumstances. In fact, even the fact that it came down from space is not because... They're out in space. That's actually not why they're there. They rain down from space because they're very short-lived and they're actually made when very energetic particles hit the upper atmosphere. They were only there just because they are being made by sort of a natural particle accelerator, which was cosmic radiation sometimes hits the atmosphere and it makes a very short-lived thing. And we kind of live in this particle colliderator where stuff rains down, hits stuff and makes showers of particles. And that's helped us discover a lot. It's even happened until very recently too. Um, I'll talk about it later because it's too complicated right now. So then we went on and made bigger and bigger particle accelerators because we're like, look, if we can take two things, collide them together, and then just get this jet of things coming out of it, new particles. That's one of the neat things about quantum mechanics is that you don't take like a watch and a watch and collide it and then get out the springs and stuff you know like that's what happens classically is you get springs and and gears and, and junk flies all over you break it quantum mechanics is very different where when you collide two things you actually make brand new things like take two watches and then two beach balls fly out so that's one of the nice things about why particle accelerators and colliders are so important to physicists because it allows us to just create particles and we get to see them until they decay away they usually last for a very short amount of time. So we try and smash them harder and harder together and see what we can do. So uh, when people started doing that in the 70s, because we already knew that the Charm and Strange existed, we got to make them in a lab. Mm-hmm. And then we got to make the next type of particles. We made something called the bottom quark. And now bottom had a much more boring name because it was just trying to mimic the fact that it was yet again, a even heavier down cork thing. It looked a lot like a down quark. That's why it's called bottom. But this time people were ready, physicists were ready because they said, well, look, we had this strange and then we fixed it, we ran into charm. But this time they said, look, this isn't weird. There's just the top quark out there. There's a top quark has to be because there was these five quarks and we're like, it's just, this is the missing piece. So unfortunately though, it took a really, really big accelerators that built this a really big one it took a lot of time and before the last article that i'll get to later the search for top cork was really really big because people were positive it was there everyone knew it was there it just had to be i would tear my hair out if it turned out in exist, and right. it did and we eventually found it It was very 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 heavy it's about 150 times heavier than a proton so that was great because it said okay this is almost there except there was still this unknown thing that was causing particles to have mass. And that was proposed by a guy named Peter Higgs, actually a really long time ago, long before this other stuff was discovered. But it was a really good theory and that predicted this thing called the Higgs boson, which is unlike all the other particles, it's a it's a boson, which is why it's called the Higgs boson. <laughs> they even put it in the name for that reason, because it's the one good counterexample to this sort of everyday mass particles, like all quarks and stuff and electrons having mass. So then, that was discovered really recently, like just a yeah, twenty sixteen. Yeah, yeah, something like that. That completed what was called the. I mean, it completed the standard model in that it completed like what this arrangement of the um, standard model was. Although I just realized I forgot all the, the bosons that we mentioned earlier, so I should over No those. worries.
0: It's hard. It, uh, you know, honestly, if we if we went through every single uh, particle in in the standard model, we would probably be here for a little while trying to yeah, explain yeah. it.
1: <laughs> yes. What's funny is um, there's a thing called the particle zoo, which actually doesn't even refer to the standard model, which definitely is a zoo of particles. The particle zoo is a thing physicists started to call it back in the 60s and 70s when they started making things in particle colliders because you don't make the quarks by themselves. That was part of the mystery. There's all this whole other collage of particles that are almost like every combination of quark oh yeah like they always combine either three or a pair and an anti-pair and so you just take the combinatorics of that that's a lot you know you can take an up you can take a charm and a down you can take three ups you know you can take a up up at a bottom you can take a charm (laughs) every single one and there's an enormous collage of them and they make those in particle colliders and new ones are even being found today the difference is now when we find a new one it gets like maybe a little bit of news but no one says like we found a new thing we don't even really see it as a new thing it's almost just like finding a new kind of element or an isotope or something so it doesn't get a lot of attention we'll be like oh we found this one weird state you know let's say particularly rare or something you know like uh, two tops and a down cork or something you know um Actually, I don't even know which which are the ones that still haven't been found, but there'll be really weird states that they'll eventually find them at the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider. But they're not big news stories because they're not new physics. They're new particles, but they're not new physics. We're not seeing anything new in their existence. Isn't the pairing of these quarks
0: the different arrangements referred to as mesons?
1: So to add in lots of names for no good reason, <laughs> there are mesons and then there's baryons. That's yet another okay. subdivision of the standard model world and they have special names. So a meson is always a boson and baryon, which is the other type of subdivision standard model, is always a fermion. What a meson is, is always a quark and an anti-quark. This is also one of the unsolved problems, but for reasons we don't understand, Quark number always has to come in plus three quarks, or it has to equal zero quarks. So a meson is a quark and an anti-quark. So its sum of total quark number is always zero. Mm. That particular mystery has actually been a huge part of my personal research. That's like one of the things that I've studied having to do with neutrons is related that we're trying to figure out why this number always seems to have to either come in three or zero, and Mm. there is no good explanation of it. So baryon, one of the most important facts about the universe is that baryon number seems to look like it can't be changed. And we don't know if that's a rule, if like it's a conservation rule, like conservation of energy. Is it that fundamental or is it just mm. a thing we happen to have never seen change? I think that's one of the biggest mysteries of the universe at the moment. In mm. particular, um, what's really weird about it is that baryons, this pair of three quarks, it always has to be an up, up or down or you know, it doesn't matter what quarks they are. There have to be three of them, and not an anti-quark of one of them. One of the biggest mysteries is why there's always more baryons than there are antibaryons in the universe. And the reason this is a mystery is because the universe has more baryons than antibaryons. The Big Bang did not produce an equal amount of baryons and antibaryons. Otherwise, everything would have annihilated, and we would just be a soup of energy, and we we're not be here. <laughs> yeah. we wouldn't be here. <laughs> this is get one of those things the standard model has all these great answers and it just doesn't have an answer for that it just says look there's more variants all right deal with, it. <laughs> and, That's with fair. and any experiment we do in a, in a lab to date doesn't show a difference enough to explain what would be preferred in other words not preferred
0: interesting Since we're kind of talking about the problems now, I guess we might as Uh, well transition a little bit. Well,
1: you brought up mesons and (laughs) baryons.
0: That was my fault. You know, particle physics is already extremely complicated at its like most basic form, and then whenever you start getting into the weeds, it's like, oh my, okay, let's take a step back really quick.
1: This baryon thing, I'm glad it came up though, because that's the name of this episode, it's the first example of an asymmetry that exists in nature. And that's what's really interesting about it. It's an asymmetry between matter and antimatter. And in particular, it's an asymmetry that we don't understand because we can't find it in other ways when we look for it.
0: We're going to talk about that in segment two. Uh, So before we conclude the first segment, I kind of want to highlight what is the standard model not able to answer at the moment. One thing you said is gravity. I know there are efforts to try to find a fundamental force carrier for gravity because of the evidence that we have with uh, what we found at LIGO not that long ago with discovering gravitational waves. So if you want to like dive into that a little bit more.
1: Sure. So gravity definitely does a lot of things that are similar to everything in the standard model. It seems to transmit at the speed of light, like all massless carrier particles. I I, I actually forgot to name them all, but there's photons that carries light, but Mm -hmm. that one discovered a long time ago. I mean, we realized that since, I mean, we literally see it every day. So our bodies are designed to see light. So that one was really easy to discover. Then there's something called the W boson, very not normal but that's involved in nuclear decay so it wasn't discovered until the modern era when we started discovering how neutrons and protons interacted then there's another particle that has no mass but is very very strong and that's called the gluon and that was so strong that it it only occurs inside of a nucleus And again it didn't it wasn't discovered until we discovered nuclear physics because until we actually started probing atoms we had no idea that this was even going on inside of us all of the time I love this fact about the gluon, even though the gluon is massless, most of our mass comes from gluons. You are personally mostly made of gluons. And that is a very weird thing because everyone says, well, I don't even know what that is. And it doesn't matter. But most of your mass comes from a gluon, not from quarks, not from electrons. There are so many of them that Einstein's theory of special relativity, not uh, general relativity, says that even massless things that are contained inside of a little box it will still have mass. That's the E equals MC squared part right. of Einstein's theory, and, and we discovered this only recently. But we're mostly made of quarks. Carl Sagan liked to say we were made of stardust. Well, the stardust <laughs> that we were made of was also quarks. So right. um, then. These, these other two that really are unusual, called W and Z bosons, those really just have to do with radioactivity. So right. they get a lot of press, even though those particles themselves don't. So, for example, when things decay radioactively, it's usually because of something called the W and Z boson. They're causing that decay. Right. <laughs> Can I go into gravity now? Is that sure? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Early on, like I said, it went all the way back to, to Einstein. He he went to his death, but trying to figure this out. But as we learned more about it, we knew at least how the math of gravity worked and how that would guide if there was a quantum theory of gravity. So one of the things we knew is we knew that gravity had to transmit information the way, like you said, gravity waves were transmitted. And even though we only recently discovered gravity waves, in fact, my relativity professor, Kip Thorne, won the Nobel Prize for working on that. I remember when I was taking class from him, he said... And 20 years from now, I'm going to, you know, we're going to try and discover gravitational waves. I was lucky enough to actually be hanging out with him the day that he found out that that had happened. I actually was interviewing for my own podcast. It was really cool. And he said he he couldn't tell us what it was, but he's like, we opened the box and it was really interesting. (laughs) That's all he could tell us. (laughs) And then I only found out later why he was so excited about what they had found in the box. And that was because they had discovered gravitational waves and he won the Nobel Prize for that. But gravitational waves are not quantum mechanics. They are classical but they have certain properties that make them have certain mathematical structure to them, which has to do with their symmetries. And again, related to the topic of this podcast, asymmetries, the thing I study, fundamental symmetries, that's the field I I study. So gravity waves have like a different structure than photons. Photons are bosons. They have spin one, Mm -hmm. again, a weird thing that only really kind of makes sense in uh, quantum mechanics. But if there was a particle that carried gravity, It would have to be something like a fundamental gravity wave, just like light. It can be explained by photons. There'd be something where gravity waves could be explained by gravitons. That's the name they gave it. Even though the gravitons never been discovered, it has a name because we like to name things. So a graviton would be a little different than it'd have spin two. And it would have to, because of the way it stretches and warps space, it would have to be spin two object, sometimes called a, a tensor object. Cancer just because that's the type of mathematical object that explains gravity so you would have to transmit that otherwise you wouldn't be able to tell two things at a distance what gravity was doing so we know that even if we could figure out how to make quantum mechanics work with gravity it would have to have this particle this particle be really weak that's one of the reasons why we can't find it in an accelerator it'd be way weaker right. than a proton when i say weak i mean its chance of interacting with a particle that has mass is way lower than the chance a photon does interacting with a particle that has charge
0: lower than the chance that like a neutrino would even interact with mass is that is that true
1: absolutely in fact neutrinos interact via something called the weak force it's called the weak force because it's much weaker than the strong force And it's weaker than electromagnetism, although even that comes with a weird mathematical caveat. So I won't go into that. It's too complicated. It actually isn't weaker than electromagnetism, but in practice, it okay, like let's not go there. Um, the point is gravity is way weaker than all of those. So gravity doesn't even come on the scale. For example, I said in particle accelerators we can smash stuff together and get things out we would have to smash together so many things and with so much energy to ever even see a single graviton do anything interesting that we're just never going to see that in a collider. And so this creates a fundamental problem, which is not just that we don't know how to mathematically unify gravity with quantum mechanics. We can't experimentally make it. And that causes us to not really be able to see the two colliding, you know, literally colliding in real life. And this makes all sorts of issues where we don't understand what happens in parts of the universe. We don't happen like really, really briefly at the beginning of the Big Bang. Our models break down there. We don't know what happens inside a black hole. Mm-hmm. We don't know what happens near the singularity of a black hole. There's all these places where quantum mechanics and gravity should unify in some way. We know they have to unify because they, they're kind of on a collision course. It's like watching two trains come together. But we don't have any evidence of what will actually happen. This was actually really well demonstrated in the movie Interstellar, which was also made by Kip Thorne. Yes. I guess <laughs> <the same guy. laughs> and it, it's a really good movie. I was really happy to see the new Thor, Natalie Portman's character, who I, I actually helped develop her, her set in the original Thor. I really liked it to try to explain complicated stuff related to traveling through space and time. And she says, watch Interstellar. It'll explain it better. And that's really true. Interstellar has a lot of really deep points in it. They might sound like just science fiction fluff, but there are really good points. So one of the things that happens is Interstellar, they say, look, we can't, you know, the character is is trying, he's kind of a caricature of what Kip is like in real life. He's a physicist. He's trying to explain quantum gravity and he can't. And he says, "Look, we can't even see inside a black hole, so we can't see this. It's it's literally like excluded from our view. That's very much what it's like, unfortunately." Wasn't there a robot named Kip? There was, yeah, the one that blows up. <laughs> I'm not sure why, but yeah, yeah, they named one after him.
0: <laughs> that's beautiful. I I didn't know that until way after the fact, um, and I'm like, that's that's a that's a really cool like little movie detail. I like, that. yeah, I like that yeah. a lot. That was cool. One other thing, I think, before we run out of here for the segment is dark matter particles.
1: That is another example of something the standard model does not explain. When we look at the way the universe expands and also, probably more importantly, the way galaxies rotate, we can look at the way uh, galaxies warp galaxies behind them through a like a, almost like a gravitational lens right. type of thing. Mm-hmm. It is really clear to us that there's this very large chunk of matter out there that we can't see at all. And when I say we can't see, I mean, it doesn't interact with light. It doesn't seem to clump together the way planets do. It does not seem to be made up of little black holes. That's actually been studied pretty well. You can't see black holes. So that was an early explanation that was called the Macho explanation that had a funny name macho um that. Uh, instead what seemed to really went out was something called the wimp so there used to be a wimp and macho battle but machos were pretty much ruled out i'm sure there's somebody who will disagree with me but for the most part the consensus is that those are ruled out what wimps were were like little tiny heavy particles out there that mm-hmm. don't interact with anything and neutrinos cannot be wimps that's not good enough they have to be no. heavier than that a wimp is a sense for weakly interacting massive particle that means an interact a particle that interacts via the weak force or any weak force it doesn't have to be the weak force but if it interacts through the, something that's very weak and that it has lots of mass but it just flies around and what's possible is that dark matter is just stuff flying through us right now like this room might actually be full of dark matter at the moment and we don't realize it mm-hmm. and we can only see it because we see gravity behaving at large scales as if there's this stuff flying around but there's nothing that we can make in a collider there's nothing in the standard model that says what it can be so we just can't find it and that got even more frustrating recently because after we discovered the Higgs we thought oh we're going to finally find what this dark matter is it's just good we thought it was going to be this pattern of you think or you remember at the beginning of the show I said um that you know we found this the strange and then yay we found the charm and then we found the bottom yay we found the top and then we look for the Higgs. There it is. We were hoping that was going to happen with Dark Matter. We thought there's going to be this thing. Oh, there it is. It's this 300, you know, GEV thing. Thank goodness. <laughs> but the LHC has not found anything. It has just found this desert of particles. And so that trend of finding new stuff ended and it was very frustrating. And it's frustrating for a lot of reasons, not just because we don't have an explanation, but also like it says, well, what are we supposed to do? Build a bigger collider? How much bigger? Is it 10 times bigger? Are we gonna build one the entire diameter of the earth, the size of the solar system? We don't we don't know. What do we do? Because <laughs> there's no there's no theory that says what is the next thing. We ended this trend of finding like a little hint. We just know something's there, we just don't know what it is. So we're trying to figure out other ways to look for this dark matter particle. Maybe it's not even a particle, I don't know. Yeah, we know it's there because it's most of everything. But what is it?
0: <laughs> I guess something cute to really end the segment right here by just saying, you know, we've spent the majority of this segment talking about things that are visible to us. It's the visible matter. And then dark matter and dark energy accounts for literally the majority of the universe. Like yep. what, 5% is the visible matter that we spent all this time talking about.
1: <laughs> yep, yep.
0: <laughs> Gotta love it. All right, so whenever we come back, we're going to actually talk more about the asymmetries of the universe. So stick around. Have you ever been standing in the shower looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water, which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found C-Bar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does C-Bar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same C-Bar for 3 months now and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, it's also effective, efficient, and most importantly it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to cbar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. C-Bar. Shampoo done right for you and the planet all right we're back this is segment two and we're now getting into the asymmetries we've we've done a lot of um we've laid groundwork we've talked about the standard model we've you know briefly touched on the asymmetries but now we're going to go into depth more we mentioned this in segment one i'll bring it back up again it's about the matter antimatter imbalance and before we get into this i kind of want to throw a little historical fact about antimatter and Paul Dirac in I think 1928 was the first person to posit the existence of positrons or the antimatter particle of the electron and he did that with the Dirac equation and it turned out to be true which is really cool I wanted to throw it out there but I want to take this through like a three-step approach, like what is happening, how do we know that there is an imbalance, and then what are we finding, or how are we trying to solve this mystery? Because it is a big mystery. It's the reason why you and I are literally here having this conversation. So what is this imbalance? Why does it occur?
1: Okay. You mentioned the Dirac equation, so I want to tell oh, yeah, you a sure. little bit about that. So, just like I mentioned earlier, there's an up and down court. People are like, "Well, there's a you know, there's a bottom, so there's got to be a top." Um, the Dirac equation was really similar to that, and then, uh, well, it's a little bit more complicated than the taking the square root of something. You know, the square root of x equals one has two mm-hmm. solutions; it has plus one and it has minus one. The Dirac equation was a lot like that. That's part of what led people to think there must be antimatter, Like led him to think there's antimatter. His equation just had two states. It had a, a plus state and a minus state. What is this? minus state? Why does that solve the equation? And this was a really frustrating moment, but also really exciting because it was a good time when people said, well, just because it's a math thing doesn't mean it's real. We knew electrons were always one charge and never the other charge. So were like Dirac, like come down. Your equation just is overly fancy or something. This is the first <laughs> time that theoretical physics predicted something really tangible. It was like, no, there's this other electron, and it has the opposite charge of an electron, even yeah. though we never see it in real life. So it was related to the asymmetry. Were like, if it's real, then where is it? You know, yeah. people were like, well, it doesn't exist at all. So this was that was the main idea. It was like the universe doesn't have it. Deal with it. But it turns out the universe does have it. That was the first time we realized, wait a minute, why is the universe made of electrons? Why do we only see electrons in the lab? And yet we can make a positron. And I was really fortunate to learn physics in the very building that the positron was discovered, Bridge Hall at Caltech. There's a little plaque on there that says, this is where the positron was discovered. And what was great is as I went to lab, there was a little bubble chamber outside that somebody was keeping uh, set up for students to see as they walked in. And you could see positrons every day. Every day, positrons would show up. So I love that in the building that the positrons first found, positrons are happening all the time. You're literally in a room. These antimatter versions of electrons are in the room with you right now. There's just way less of them than there are electrons. We don't realize they're there. I mean, they had to be discovered first, but they're there. And um, this led to the discovery that this could happen. But also, when we made them in the lab, they were always 50 50. If you have enough energy to make the mass of two electrons, you automatically can make two at once. They'll just split Mm -hmm. apart. You'll see no difference between them. They just both pop into existence. You'll see an electron and an anti electron will just fly out of things sometimes. And that was really strange because that's not what we see in the world. We see only electrons. But if we have enough energy, we go over a certain energy, we make both. And this was the first time that this asymmetry of matter and antimatter really came to our attention because we were seeing it in one case where there was no asymmetry and then we were seeing the universe where there is this enormous asymmetry
0: the antimatter name is both beautiful and like very sci-fi at the same time people like well well, antimatter is just it's just not real no it's it's very real it's it's just explaining like it's it's matter it is matter like the anti doesn't mean that it's not matter it's definitely matter and it just has opposite properties of what matter particles have i shouldn't say sci-fi it's just misleading i guess
1: yeah well it's used in (laughs) sci-fi so that's part (laughs) of it but also i mean it has some other very weird things about it like uh richard Feynman described it a lot as matter going backward in time and some people don't like hearing that for description of it that is very close to what it behaves like I like that description because it relates to another asymmetry that we don't understand, which is the asymmetry of time versus going backward in time. That one's a very different one from the rest of the asymmetries because at the moment we know there's a symmetry of time that has to do with our understanding of the past and what will happen in the future and it has to do with entropy because entropy increases which again is related to our understanding of the past so that one gets also very confusing because that one it's not clear we measure time accurately in a lab anyway we experience time that's one of the things that makes it very different and yet when you take the laws of physics you can treat time just like any other thing you can treat it like the x dimension or the y dimension or charge so you can do things like say well what if we put a negative time sign in there what do we get and mm-hmm. that's one of the weird things is that you kind of get the properties of antimatter we have a term for it in the fundamental symmetries world we just call it the letter t <laughs> it's not shocking but we just I mean so there's various symmetries that we have that, that we refer to them so there's charge there's parity there's time parity is like yes CPT that's what we go after we go after like well what if we do this experiment and we play it backward in time well we get the same thing and so we'll try and set up the experiment to be backward in time and see well then do do nothing but antiparticles come out in that case and then we're always looking for some little difference between changing it backward in time or changing it through parity, meaning doing it like it's left-handed versus right-handed as if the experiment was done in a mirror Mm -hmm. and uh, changing the charge. So that's in the case of, like I said, an electron has negative charge and a positron has positive charge. Mm -hmm. So we do experiments where we split those and see what happens. we're trying to find any kind of imbalance.
0: It's amazing. So how do we know how much matter versus antimatter there was? Why is there a certain amount of matter existing, but yet everything else, you know, was annihilated at some
1: point? That's a good question. So we don't actually directly know that there's matter versus antimatter. What we really measure today is how much matter versus energy is there because we don't see antimatter like when we go into the sky. And this comes up a lot where people think, well, maybe that's an anti-galaxy or something. And there's actually a lot of reasons why we're pretty sure that it's not like galaxy, anti-galaxy, galaxy, anti-galaxy. That, that would be one way that we would have, maybe the two just clumped together differently. We're pretty mm-hmm. sure that that is not the case. A lot of reasons for that. But what we do see is we see the amount of light versus matter. Sometimes that's called the, um, the, I know, I know we, we measure, that. Anyway, we, can measure that. No worries. <laughs> we can measure that ratio mm-hmm. and, um, And it's very big. There's way more light than matter. So it implied that at the beginning of the universe, there was a lot of antimatter, Mm. but antimatter annihilates to create energy. So that's Mm -hmm. what we see is we just see that there's this afterglow of the CMB. That's right. In the cosmic microwave background. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know you got to abbreviate it on this show. That's cool. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry.
0: Cosmic microwave background. (laughs) CMB.
1: Yeah. So we see that. And by measuring the properties of that really carefully, how much slugginess there is in it, we can measure that value very carefully. The ratio of variance to photons.
0: What is that? One in every... Is it 100 billion or just one in every a billion? I forget what the exact number I is. Don't I don't have it's in the between the I should
1: have it memorized because I've written code to uh, use that number and <laughs> shake predictions. But I think it's, uh, it's roughly 10 to the 10. So yeah, it'd be 10 billion. Physicists don't care about the things in front. We only care about the exponents. <laughs> so <it's>, That's fair. <laughs> So basically like that means that the asymmetry we're looking for between matter and antimatter is not big. We're looking for one. That's just, yeah. Like you said, one every 10 billion ish kind of that scale, but we don't see that even close in a lab. We don't see anything remotely close to that big in a lab. It's funny because I said that small because I'm like, well, one in 10 billion, that's tiny, but remember the standard model is has up to 40 decimal places sometimes. So mm-hmm. one in 10 billion is. That's huge when you're talking about forty decimal places. That's so, a great way to put that. And we're just and we're just not seeing it. And it, that's what's frustrating. Is we're trying to find like well, let's at least find that. You know, we can't. It so, also shows how hard looking for these asymmetries can be because we're not looking for a giant, whopping asymmetry. We're not you know looking looking for like a raised eyebrow kind of thing. We're looking for a thing that if you saw it on a human face or something, you would think you were just looking at an exact flipped image or something like that. And we don't see that.
0: What are we doing to try to figure out how this asymmetry arose? Like, for me, I, I've been doing my own research, but um I've heard of like the TK2 or T2K experiment. Uh, are you are you familiar with that?
1: Um, I'm embarrassed to say that I'm familiar with it, but I don't, have, I don't know enough about it to talk about it. If I don't, I would have looked it up before. <laughs> There's a lot of colleagues who would be mad at me for not
0: knowing that. Maybe I'll just jog your memory. It, it's based on neutrino oscillations. They're looking at neutrino versus antineutrino not, uh, oscillations. And essentially, that's just like the change of the lepton number between uh-huh. what it would be as a, an electron neutrino and a muon neutrino changing.
1: So there are experiments that look for lepton number changing that's not an example of that. So when a neutrino turns from an electron neutrino to a muon neutrino, by the way, when I was trying to give all the particles of the standard model, I didn't even get to (laughs) neutrinos. I was gonna say
0: something, but it's it's no big deal.
1: Yeah, yeah, but I'll just cover them right now. So neutrinos are yet another part of the standard model. They are kind of like sort of a weird copy of down quarks, except unlike down quarks, there's these heavy versions of leptons and they have charge. And then there's this chargeless version that Mm -hmm. have very little mass, except they don't have zero mass. They just have very little mass. (laughs) Really, really, really little mass. Again, Mm -hmm. one of the weird things. Like, why is it zero? It should be zero, but it's not. Or maybe it should. But then on top of that, just like there's three flavors of quarks, there's, you know, the up and down flavor. There's the charm strange flavor. There's the top bottom flavor. There's also three flavors of leptons. So there's the electron neutrino. There's the muon neutrino. and There's the tau quark and the tau neutrino. In fact, the fact that it's called tau is actually... That's like an homage to the top cork, by the way. That's not a coincidence. We think that's a pattern, and we don't know what that pattern is. We don't understand why there are three of these, why there are three of those. Yeah, It just seems to work, and the math matches up. It's very weird.
0: The math Um, is math.
1: Yeah, it just happens. (laughs) And lots of stuff in this air bottle happens in threes, by the way. Uh, Mm -hmm. Also, not completely clear why. One of the things that neutrinos can do is they can change from one flavor to the other. Quarks yes. can't do that. I mean, they they could in theory, but they don't because they're so massively different from each other. Literally massive. They don't flip. But neutrinos are so light they can just sort of casually change from one into the oh, other.
0: That's what I meant to say. I'm sorry. I said lepton yeah. number. I meant to say lepton yes. flavor.
1: Yes. Apologies. No problem, because we like to throw weird names and stuff like that. Yeah, we call it flavor like it's an ice cream for some reason. Hmm. And that's what those three generations are called, flavors. Again, there's no explanation of why those flavors exist. Why are there three? What causes them to be that way? Why do they weigh different amounts? We don't know. There's no theory that explains that. I guess it's a kind of asymmetry, but it's an open problem. So if anybody listening wants to try and solve it, please do. One of the places that you can look for these asymmetries is when things change flavor or they switch between up and down or top and bottom or electron to. And that's because those are all governed by something called the weak force. And the weak force is one place we're trying to find these asymmetries between matter and antimatter. In fact, actually... The first really interesting asymmetry was discovered not in the electromagnetic force, it was discovered in the weak force, because that was the first time we could do an experiment. And we discovered that if you do the experiment in a mirror, you get a different result. And neutrinos played a role in that, because neutrinos are always left-handed. When I say left-handed, I mean, it's weird because it's not like a hand, but if this is a, a rule you use a lot in physics, you use your thumb. This is my right hand, sorry, but here's my left hand. You use your thumb, that points to the direction something's traveling, and then my fingers point to the direction it's spinning. Neutrinos always come out like that. The reverse in a mirror doesn't happen, and so that changes the way an experiment happens. There's lots of experiments you can do where you you can just look at it in a mirror, and you'll be able to tell whether it was done for real or it was a photo flipped after the fact. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time we said, wait a minute, but I thought space was symmetric. Mm -hmm. It's like, nope space is not always symmetric in certain cases (laughs) you know that's where parity was introduced that's why we call it parity because that's left-handed versus right-handed so
0: i see so the t2k experiment was based on neutrino oscillation between a muon and and electron neutrinos and then what they found is that it happened more often than what you would see through anti-neutrino oscillations so that was where the, the the asymmetry uh, lied. I will state that it's not something that is a true discovery yet because it's not something that is um you know five sigma. They classified it as a three sigma.
1: Should have heard of it. If I was more up to date, I would have, but yeah, that's one of the things that is tricky about this stuff working with asymmetries and particle physics in general is that a lot of times stuff is very tantalizing. We see results like that. We're like, oh is this it? Finally please and then sometimes we go and we do it more. The only way to get around the statistical stuff is you just do it a thousand times more which is the scientific method that's how you're supposed to do it and then sometimes it turns into a discovery that other times it just goes uh oh well. yep. <laughs> yeah yeah so it's,
0: it's just so, it was just a promising thing right it's it's not right. actually a, a, tr- a true discovery
1: i think we're gonna get into this in the next segment like the specific parts of the research that i use but you can look for it in neutrons themselves. Regular neutrons are a place that people are looking for charge and parity violation that might explain the matter, antimatter, asymmetry of the universe. And that's in the case that you can look for things that uh, shouldn't exist, but might exist, or they might be bigger than they're supposed to. So a really good example of that is the electric dipole moment of a neutron. So Mm -hmm. neutrons have a magnetic dipole moment. That part's not new. So you can put them in magnetic field and they'll align or anti-align with the magnetic field. But They shouldn't have an electric dipole moment, except incredibly tiny. So far, people trying to measure it can't find it yet because it's so tiny. But we're hoping that someday if we find it and it's bigger than it's supposed to be, meaning it's bigger than the standard model would predict, then that could be a really good hint of some asymmetry that's occurring. That's one of the reasons why we're doing that. So it's a a great example of a weird experiment where you try to measure something really carefully and then try to see if the asymmetry will crop up. Interesting.
0: I think another asymmetry that you might be more familiar with is that there is a K-on asymmetry. Is, is that true?
1: Yes. That was the first time that any CP was found. And, and it's nice because it was also the first strange particle to, You know, that literally had strangeness. So it was the first one that behaved differently, not just on the asymmetry, but it, you know, it was just oddly heavy compared to other things that we saw in, in everyday life one of the things they found is that kaons and anti-kaons don't quite behave the same. And that yeah. was the first time we said, hey, look, this, is, this isn't this is non-existent. This is real. They give us a lot of hope that there really was this light at the end of the asymmetry tunnel that like, matter and antimatter behave differently, but it wasn't enough. <laughs> Unfortunately, it just wasn't enough. It's nowhere close to explain the Big Bang. So, yeah. yeah, that made it so messy because it's like, okay, so there's some, but not enough, you know, it's just... <laughs>
0: of course it seems like there's a decent amount of asymmetry it's been probably a lot to still be found that could even like accumulate to end up explaining the asymmetry overall
1: of matter yeah it could also i mean it could easily happen just at an energy scale we haven't discovered yet so very true
0: is there any experiments that you're aware of that are continuing to to look into this asymmetry any specific ones that you know of
1: the dipole moment experiments, I think are the most promising at the moment, but there's others too. There's things related to looking at whether Baryon number is conserved, for example, so that could relate to the asymmetry. So an experiment I'm particularly interested in is that sometimes neutrons, maybe they turn into anti-neutrons. And that would be a violation of baryon conservation, baryon number. So remember I said at the very beginning, I said baryons means three quarks. And so so when we look at a big vat of water full of baryons, full of protons, which are the most common baryon in the universe by a lot, that's what most of things are, is just a hydrogen atom. right? H2O, so lots of hydrogen atoms in a vat of water. And we can just sit there and we can just look for them turning into something else. We can see, do do they fall apart from time to time? Meaning, do they go from one baryon to just nothing, from three quarks to zero quarks, and we don't see that like at all. It doesn't mean it doesn't ever happen, but it lets us put really good limits on how infrequently it happens, and yeah. it's way longer than the the lifetime of the universe, um, which is also good because then the sun would be here and we're here, and you know, if, if that weren't true, we'd fall apart. Um, but that doesn't happen, but it's not necessarily clear that neutrons don't turn into anti-neutrons. So that's a possibility. That's an experiment I'm particularly interested in.
0: Well, I think since we're going to talk about that in the next segment, let's conclude this one. So whenever we come back, we're going to be jumping into more of Kevin's experiments about ultra cold neutrons. Yep. Right. Are you an athlete who is constantly on the grind? Maybe you're a student who's cramming for an 8 a.m. exam the next day. Or maybe you're someone who's crushing a hike and you have three peaks to go. Well, you've come to the right ad. Sigma snacks are a healthy alternative to pre-workout and energy drinks. These snacks deliver easily digestible sugars and carbs necessary to crush an early morning workout, late night study sesh, or any adventure in between. By combining caffeine and the amino acid L-theanine, these bars are backed by scientific research to provide clean energy, extra focus, and reduce the anxiety and crash that are associated with normal pre-workout and junk energy drinks. Not to mention, they taste great. Specifically, I have been taking them with me on my backpacking adventures. They're a great way to start the day without having any jitters or an upset stomach on the trail. Lastly, Sigma Snacks is a student-run, student-operated startup that would like to offer you 15% off your first purchase with the promo code STEAM. So head on over to EatSigmaSnacks.com and order your first Sigma snack today to have the best and most reliable source of energy shipped right to your door. That's EatSigmaSnacks.com, promo code STEAM for energy that's out of this world. All right. This is the final segment of asymmetries of the universe. We've talked about a lot. Uh, I hope that you're you're still you're still hanging in there. <laughs> I'm hanging in. <laughs> this is this is the knockout round, uh, at least yeah. at least for this episode. And we're gonna continue uh, talking about. More asymmetries, but more towards what Kevin does with his research. So, Kevin, do you want to start out by talking about ultra-cold neutrons and then you know run through your research? It's it's literally it's your segment. I'm just gonna be here lay person asking the questions or just going, Oh wow, that's awesome.
1: Yeah, so I love to Take it so, away, man. So when I went back to grad school, my advisor introduced me to ultra cold neutrons. I hadn't even heard of them before that. Certainly knew what a neutron was, but mm-hmm. a really neat thing that we discovered. Fermi proposed these for a long time ago. So um, anyway, he was one of the people that proposed it. So there was this really amazing realization that when you freeze something, when you get cold enough, because of quantum mechanics, something called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle causes its size to expand because you can't know something's speed and its location at the same time. So if you know its energy really well, you know that it's cold, that means you don't know quite where it's cold. Okay, mm-hmm. this is a really important property of something that gets cold. And so, what happens is when neutrons do that, they spread out and they don't interact with one nucleus. They interact with many nuclei at once. And this is a really neat thing that only quantum mechanics allows you to do, where a thing that came from a nucleus could then suddenly be in like a several hundred nuclei sort of at once, sort of blurring over the thing. Anyway, so when you do that, though, you can do really neat things with uh, neutrons because they suddenly stop behaving like little particles that came from a tiny nucleus. They start behaving more like a photon or a particle of white because they they behave like a blurry wave. And so you can do things like you can bounce them off of surfaces, you know, collection of, of other nuclei. Also, what's neat about neutrons in particular is there's a really neat trifecta that occurs where... Just by random coincidence, the properties of a neutron at this temperature happen to be all around the scale that's very usable in the lab. Those three properties are a neutron has a magnetic moment, which means that you can align it or anti-align it with a, a magnetic field. Mm-hmm. And the energy of that happens to be roughly the size of what you can trap in a magnet you'd see it in an MRI or something, you know, several oh. tests. You can trap neutrons and you can flip their spin and you can align you know, them or anti-align them an ultra cold neutron when you get it cold enough its mass is such that it bounces roughly the height of a basketball what like it goes like a few meters in the air and it will turn around from gravity and come back down it acts like a very cold gas (laughs) so That's that's really cool so these three things come together where you can trap them in bottles you know because you bounce them off the surfaces normally neutrons just fly out of stuff but you can trap them just like a regular bottle and then you can manipulate their magnetic field and you can manipulate gravity and so this is what makes them really really good at testing all kinds of stuff including some parts of gravity you can't quite test quantum gravity but you can test stuff about gravity related to this because you could actually see the neutron interacting with gravity for example we know neutrons do interact with gravity because we see them go up and fall back down <laughs> so you know let's say someone had a theory that said well gravity was only among protons like we only protons participate we know that's not true neutrons also participate in gravity the other thing that's really nice about neutrons that makes them so useful for testing fundamental symmetries of nature the neutron itself also participates in every single force that we mentioned in the Standard model so we know that they participate in gravity. That's not out in the standard model, but we also know they participate in the weak force, the strong force, mm-hmm. and the electromagnetic force. And so we get to study every little piece of those interacting with each other. Which means we get to do all these little tricks, like maybe if we flip this, then that will happen, and if we flip this one, then that will happen. We get to we get to probe almost every single part of the standard model. So ultra cold neutrons really behave a lot like a like a tiny little particle collider and we can just do lots of great things with them. Some examples are when I first started working with ultra-cold neutrons, I joined a, a group that was already studying something called beta asymmetry. Beta decay asymmetry is just a thing that was discovered about nuclear physics where if you align the spin of a neutron one way, you get a different decay result than if you align it the other way. We don't quite know why this happens it's just it Ooh. is hard-coded into the standard model it's a thing and it exists <laughs> and it's wow. just a way that nature chose to say like well if you're aligning a magnet this way then some things will go off more that way than they will the other way and we measured it because the ultra cold nutrients were so useful we measured it better than it had ever been measured before using any other kind of nuclear decay Interesting. so that was just because we could we could hold them in a trap by themselves and we can measure the most fundamental property and not worry about anything else interacting with them. Then, like for my thesis, we talked about gravitons being tensor particles. Do you remember that? We said that there yes. might be these spin two particles. So for my thesis, I also looked at the decay of ultracold neutrons, and I was trying to see if there's any evidence that tensor particles existed at all. And I don't mean I was looking for a graviton. I was looking for any tensor particle. And this was important because we also talked about dark matter. If there were tensor particles, that would be a potential candidate for dark matter. There would be these hidden tensor particles that have mass and fly around and do stuff. I didn't find any tensor particles. <laughs> That's OK. Right. It was a thesis, not a Nobel Prize. So <laughs> I right. Right. didn't expect it. That's all right. That's how most research goes. <laughs> so uh, still useful. And, yeah and then i told you about another really exciting part uh, experiment looking for the electric dipole moment of the neutron that's a very hard experiment to do and it's it's taking a long time so it's not done yet i'm not even working on that one but it's still interesting another experiment i am working on that was also really exciting and is still we're still continuing to do better at it is uh looking for just the lifetime of the neutron so a neutron is not stable once it leaves a nucleus Neutrons decay into protons. They don't stay around as neutrons. So that amount of time, the average amount of time that a neutron stays a neutron then turns into a proton is called the neutron lifetime. And it's about 15 minutes. And the reason this is hard to measure normally is because normally neutrons fly into the experimental hall way before 15 minutes if you make a neutron, like let's say from an atom bomb or from an, a nuclear reactor, they're mm. there for like a, a fraction of a second and they either very quickly combine back into some other nucleus or they fly off into nowhere mm. because they're not normally trapped. So they either fly out or they travel a short amount of distance and then recapture onto a nucleus. But mm. using ultra cold neutrons, we can keep free neutrons free from a nucleus. We can trap them in empty space for a really long time. If they didn't decay, we could trap them for like a week. That's awesome. That's how good our traps are. So we're working on a, this experiment we did called the UCN Tau experiment. It uses a special kind of magnets called Hallbach Array Magnets. And they, they're arranged in a pattern where the neutron never touches anything. It just bounces off the magnetic field. And then it uses gravity on the other side. And it literally just, it's like a little bathtub. And the neutrons just bounce around inside this thing whenever they leave it means they turned into something they either turned into a proton or they turned into something else and uh i say that we turned into something else because what's even more interesting is that when we measured this value so we measured the best neutron lifetime that anybody had ever measured down to 0.3 seconds so we're working on even better now we're taking data on more even more accurate but what was really exciting about this is that it didn't agree with neutron lifetime when people used a different method to measure it that is when they looked for just the proton coming out which is what a neutron is supposed to turn into they get Mm -hmm. a different number and the two numbers don't agree with each other really yes by several seconds and so this got uh immediately this caused a bunch of theorists to get really excited so you gotta be careful when you mention things theorists in particular we mentioned one of our favorite terms that we said earlier one person said hey well what if uh they're turning into dark matter, and that's why you're not seeing it. <laughs> and the second you put dark matter into the abstract of a vapor, there's going to be like 20 more papers about it afterwards <laughs> because, as we mentioned at the very beginning, dark matter is a huge mystery, and people yeah. are trying to find that. And So this was very exciting. People are like, well, maybe this is an explanation of what dark matter is. Now, there's a lot of reasons that, that probably isn't what's happening, but it's still really exciting. So that, that's also why we're continuing that experiment. Maybe even neutrons just turn into... Dark matter. Maybe they help explain. I also talked about how sometimes experiments you can you can see if a neutron turns into an anti-neutron or maybe it turns into some other particle. That's why I like That's using cold right. neutrons. <laughs> That's awesome.
0: Uh just briefly offset, we talked about the new Oppenheimer movie. I know you yes. said that you wanted to mention something about that. So
1: yeah, so all the research I do is with ultra-cold neutrons at the world's brightest ultra-cold neutron source. And it wasn't what I started a lot of us put in a lot of effort to make that source better and better and better and it's much Mm -hmm. brighter now and by bright i mean just the number of ultra cold neutrons it makes and now it's the world's brightest ultra cold neutron source and that's all in los alamos new mexico and that's done lance and lance is a proton accelerator beam at los alamos and los alamos was picked by robert oppenheimer during the middle of world war ii to be the secret base that the u.s would develop the first nuclear bomb Mm -hmm. and that was very much related to neutrons because a nuclear bomb is not just about uranium or plutonium those elements are important they play a role but really what's key to a, a nuclear bomb is that uh, it's a device that suddenly makes a lot of neutrons at once. It makes several grams of neutrons in a millionth of a second, and that is what actually is going on when a uh, atom bomb goes off. Is that a whole bunch of neutrons are made very, very quickly, and they, in a chain reaction, one neutron goes to another one, releases two more. Mm-hmm and the fact that you just exponentially increase the number of neutrons you make is what causes the bomb to release so much energy at once. That's also what makes nuclear power work, except there it's not all at once, thank goodness. In fact, it's designed so that can't happen. Some people think that power plants can explode like a bomb. They definitely cannot. They never will ever be able to get to that point, but they can release a lot of energy at once and you can use that energy. Anyway, Mm -hmm. the this has to do with Oppenheimer is that Oppenheimer, the movie coming out, we mentioned Interstellar. Oppenheimer is actually made by Christopher mm-hmm. Nolan is a fantastic director. I think he's great. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be one of the best movies. I'm so excited about it. But it's about Robert Oppenheimer and his quest, both moral quest, because he had to deal with the fact that he made this like terrible weapon, but also just like that he had to unleash this power. And guess what? We didn't pick that this power can be released. Humans didn't pick that. Nature picked that. Somebody mm-hmm. picked it. I'll leave that up to you to decide. But he just was, just like all of us who study this, we just study it we don't pick i didn't get to snap my fingers and decide that nuclear power existed or not it, it, it exists whether i want it to or not oppenheimer picked los alamos because he went there as a kid and it's a really amazing place it's actually the first inhabited place in what's now the legal united states it has the oldest archaeological records of any place inside of the boundaries of the united states and north america and i think one of the things that's also really amazing about it is that um one of the oldest examples of the first weapon is the clovis point is just really close to los alamos and i think it's really weird that just like this weird spot on the opposite end of the world from where most people live you know where where all humanity used to live we find the the world's first weapon and then we find the world's biggest you know sort of the last weapon that
0: is really cool another really great point that you're kind of hinting at here and something that we've That we've talked about throughout the entire episode just like nonchalantly is that we're just measuring these things we're finding these things we're observing these things but a lot of the the why is kind of hard the question of why is hard and i don't know if that's more philosophy but i mean you know science can explain it but man the why questions are definitely the toughest questions i think yeah Mm -hmm. well kevin it has been absolutely wonderful having you on the podcast i'm glad that we finally got to do this i hope people out there are going wow there's a lot to be done in particle physics maybe i should get involved or you know maybe they have some have some new ideas or maybe a a different perspective about about nature
1: really yeah if if anybody wants to ask me anything um like twitter kp hickerson so you can find me kp hickerson on twitter
0: so yeah i mean you can go to uh your website I'll, I'll make sure that I that I link that and I throw that into both the yeah, intro. kevinhickerson.com.
1: Yeah, I, yep. I bought that for some
0: reason. <laughs> 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 all good, all good. All right, well, Kevin, thanks for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That is all for this episode of Everything Steam. I just wanted to take a quick second and thank Kevin for sharing his knowledge and expertise about particle physics. The best way to access his social media accounts, research and podcast is to head to kevinhickerson.com. I would also love to mention my amazing team for their collective efforts to make this show happen. This podcast was edited by Ariel Piermont, QC by Pit Ericsit, and our episode art was created by Gabrielle Edmiston. After the episode, please give our podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. We're always looking for feedback, and the rating would greatly help us out in the fight against the algorithms. Lastly, be sure to check us out on all the socials for podcast news, upcoming episodes, and fun Steam content. Just search everything Steam on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Reddit to join in on the fun. Once again, thank you for listening to everything Steam. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. And as always, stay curious. Everything Steam would like to give a shout out to anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben Cell Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertisement background rhythm.